So for the past two, maybe three, possibly three days now, I have had the song Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega playing in my head kind of on repeat. And at first, I liked that. I like the song Tom's Diner. It's a fun song. Who doesn't like the song Tom's Diner? I don't know anybody who doesn't like it. Maybe those people exist and I just don't know them. But I, I'm going to just assume that everybody kind of likes the song Tom's Diner. It's a good song. Be that as it may, you know, having it in your head on repeat for a couple of days, it gets to be a bit much. It really does, you know. I'll just be doing something like, you know, checking my email or whatever, and it starts. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I could go on, but I actually want you to listen to this podcast. I'm going to stop. So we are back, and welcome to episode number 011, episode number 11 of The Gorman Limit, my narcissistically titled podcast. I am your host, Neil Gorman. Uh, Thank you for having me in your ears. So last time, on the last episode of this podcast, I mentioned that I am teaching a eight-week seminar on doing clinical work with individuals during this summer. And the class has now met two times, and the podcast right before this one, episode 10, what I did on that episode is uh, I kind of tried to, when, when I had my first class, the first of these eight weeks, I left the class, and I thought that was good. That was a good class. And I had these ideas sort of rumbling around inside my head that uh, the, the class's discussion had prompted. And I thought, hmm, these ideas seem interesting. So I thought that they might make a decent kind of episode of The Gorman Limit for people who are not in that class. And on top of that, I thought what I could do is kind of uh, use the podcast as a way to summarize and kind of restate slash describe slash explain some of the important ideas from the class. And then I could make the podcast available to the students in the class. So I kind of thought it's a way to kind of make an episode of a podcast and at the same time use that podcast as a potential educational aid for students that I'm actually teaching. And so that's what I did. And my plan here today is to sort of continue that trend and to use episode number 11 of The Gorman Limit to talk about a few important ideas that were explored during the second week of this class. So the ideas that I want to focus on here, really, uh, there's, there's really just two that I think are pretty important. The first one is the concept of negativity. And I want to suss that concept out a little bit more. We did it in class, but just in case a review of that might be useful to the students, I want to want to produce that. And I think a discussion of negativity might be something which is generally interesting to the sort of person who listens to this podcast. So that's the first thing that we're going to talk about. The second thing 
that is going to be discussed is the concept of the death drive. And this is an important concept, I think, because it comes up a lot if you are interested in doing psychoanalytic work with individuals. Uh, it's, It's also very interesting, even if you're not a clinician who's doing clinical work, I think the concept of the death drive is a concept which is probably interesting to people who are interested in doing much more like macro level social commentary kinds of stuff. And so that's the other concept I'm going to talk about. Now, these two concepts, they're heavy, they're big, there's a lot in them. And so I'm sure that just talking about these two things will fill up a decent amount of time on the podcast. So without further ado, let's do some more groovy introduction music, or not really introduction music at this point. Let's do some groovy transition music. And when we come back from that, let's start talking about the concept of negativity. you something real quick here uh, this is a podcast so you can't see certain things um, but you can hear things uh, the previous two sections of this podcast I recorded yesterday when I was sitting in the office where I see patients and this segment of the podcast is being recorded in my house where I am sitting with my three-month-old son right now uh, he's in this little bouncer thing in front of me and he's looking at me we're hanging out together and he's mostly content it seems like right now just kind of watching me talking to a microphone and bounce in this bouncy thing that he's in uh, but you'll hear him you'll hear him from time to time and I just wanted to let you know who you were hearing that's that's my my second son who's three months old so on this segment of the podcast what I want to talk about is the concept of negativity. And this is a concept that came up in a text that the seminar that I'm teaching, uh, that they, they read. The name of the text was The Ethics of Opting Out, Queer Theories, Defiant Subjects by Mari Rudy. And in that text, uh, the concept of negativity is mentioned rather regularly. And one of the things that I have students do in this class is sort of um, take notes on texts and then submit the notes that they take uh, for credit. And I don't have any format for the notes that I want people to take. I just want them to take notes. And I look at the notes that students take. And one of the things that I noticed in the notes is that this concept of negativity was very frequently highlighted. But it seemed to me that some of the students were reading the term negativity differently than the way that I think Mari Rudy was using the term. So let me suss that out for you a bit here. Some students saw the word negativity and they read it the way that I think most people in the United States would normally read that word. They think there's positivity and that positivity means good. And then there's negativity and that negativity means bad. And while that is definitely the way that the words get used very often, that's not the way that Mari Rudy was using them in the text that the seminar was working from. Uh, So the 
the idea here, the way that Rudy is using the words and the way that a lot of other theorists use the words is like this. Positivity is the idea of having something and negativity is the idea of not having or lacking something. So you'll, you'll see this in a couple of different places. One place is the concept of positive versus negative liberty. What is positive liberty? Positive liberty is having the right to do something or say something or own something, etc. So in the United States, when people turn 18, they have the right to vote. That is a positive liberty. It's something that you have, that you possess. Negative liberty, on the other hand, is uh, the liberty where you are, where, where nothing gets in your way, basically. It's the absence of something. It's the absence of an obstacle to you doing something. So uh, give you an example. If you have a job and say you, you're, you normally, under normal circumstances, work in an office and you work at a desk and at a certain point during your day, you decide you want to get up from your desk and, you know, use the restroom or go and get a, a cup of coffee or something. If no one will stop you from doing that, if you're just like free to get up from your desk and like walk around and do those things, that's negative liberty. It's the absence of somebody stopping you and saying, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? Now, if you're a high school student, you don't have a lot of times that same kind of liberty. You can't like just like get up and walk out of class and have that potentially not be a problem for you, right? You lack that sort of thing. There's something in the way. There's there's like a barrier to you being able to kind of just get up and walk around. You lack the negative liberty when you're a high school student. You possess the negative liberty if you're a worker in an office somewhere to just kind of get up and move around. Another way that we can imagine this is uh, kind of to borrow from the language of behaviorism. So in behaviorism, there's this idea of reinforcement. And I think actually a lot of times people misunderstand this idea. So a positive reinforcement is when you give somebody something. So if you want your kid to put their dishes in the dishwasher when they're done eating, if the kid does that and then you reward the kid with a sticker on a chart or a piece of candy or a compliment, right? All of those things are things that you give, that you provide. You give the kid a reward to encourage them to repeat the behavior, which is putting their dishes in the dishwasher, but you're giving them something. That's, that's a positive reinforcer. A negative reinforcer is where you remove something that somebody dislikes. You, you take it away in an attempt to get them to do something. So uh, for example, imagine that you want kids to study and get good grades in a class. If you say, if you have a 90%, an A in the class or higher than that, you don't need to take the final exam. That's a negative reinforcer. What are you doing? You're removing something. You're removing the final exam. And it, by removing it, if the kid meets the condition of getting a 90% or higher, you're encouraging the kid to try to get a 90% or higher, right? But you're, you're encouraging the kid to do that, not by giving them something, but by taking something away. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that while it is very normal in our culture that people just take the word positive and associate it with good and the word negative and associate it with like bad, that's not the way that those two terms are used in a lot of socio and psychological and even economic theory or in legal theory even, right? In all of those bodies of theory, 
Positive means having, possessing, and negative means lacking, not having something. Okay, so if you get that, we're in good shape to get this started here. So the text, the ethics of opting out, queer theories, defiant subjects. One of the things that gets discussed in that text, there's a lot of things that get discussed, but one of the things is the idea of being able to get married uh, in the legal sense of marriage, right? Like having marriage be something which is a legal status that people can get whether they're um, getting married as a heterosexual couple, male, female, or as a um, non-heterosexual uh, couple. So you have, you know, female, female, male, male, or maybe some, one of the partners is transgender, so on and so forth, different permutations of this. So the idea, the, one of the ideas that is explored in this book is what does having that right do versus lacking that right? And there are some theorists that Rudy mentions that, that kind of highlight the, the lacking of rights that certain groups have as something that is a significant thing that in some ways might actually be uh, important in defining a, a group and a letting a group kind of separate itself from the more normative dominant group within whatever kind of uh, society or culture they're in. Now that probably is, sounds more confusing than I want it to be. So what I want to do here is, is kind of try to riff on this a little bit here. And to do that, I have to um, propose something. I have to propose that there's a difference between being alienated from something versus being separated from something. And I know that what I'm doing here is, is kind of like semantics and it might seem like splitting hairs to some people, but I'm just going to ask that you bear with me. I'm going to propose that alienation is something that is imposed on a person or a group of people. So if you, you a, a society can alienate people from something. So I, to go to one of my earlier examples, our culture in the United States, our society, our, our legal apparatus alienates anybody who is under the age of 18 from being able to vote. That is something that society says, even if you're eight, if you're 17 years old, and maybe you're a very well-informed 17-year-old who's done a lot of work to understand the political positions of different candidates, you're still alienated from the right to vote. You don't get that right. Like you can't at 17 pass some kind of test and then get the right to vote. You just don't have it. You're alienated from it. You're, you're told, no, you can't do this. That is not a door that is open to you. That is alienation. Uh, the point I want to make about alienation is that alienation is something that is imposed it's not something that's necessarily chosen by whoever experiences the alienation. It's something that it, I guess you could say happens to you versus separation. Separation, on the other hand, is something that somebody might opt into. Uh, or as Rudy was talking about in the book, they might opt out of something uh, and opting out could be seen as another way of describing separating. So the idea is that I can choose to separate myself from a culture. I can choose to separate myself from a dominant kind of like way of behaving, a dominant ideology or something like that. And that's a choice that I make. Like I say, I don't want to be a part of something. So I am going to separate myself from that. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, I have a friend who I, I know in my real life who, you know, when he was a kid and a teenager and a young adult, 
uh, him and his family belonged to a church somewhere. And this was a, a church that had a very conservative worldview. And one of the ways that that conservative worldview was acted out is that they said that, you know, marriage is something that is, that occurs only between a man and a woman. And that's it. A biological man and a biological woman. They're the only two kinds of people who can be married. And my friend uh, attempted to engage the leadership of this church and say like, hey, maybe we want to change this policy. Maybe we want to be, we want to at the very least have a dialogue around it. Like, let's talk about this maybe marriage could be extended to people who don't meet those conditions that only a biological man and a biological woman, maybe we could open it up and maybe opening it up would mean that more people would become interested in becoming a part of the church community. And the church essentially said, no, we're not interested in having that conversation. And uh, my friend decided that he was going to then separate himself from that church he said, I'm going to leave this church and I'm going to go join a different church, which has a, a different set of ideological principles, which I find more to my liking. But he, he, he said, I'm opting out of being a part of this community and I'll then opt into a different community, uh, which created you know a, a bit of a, a problem for my friend because his family kind of uh, was more in line with the church, the, the first church's thinking. They they also thought marriage is something that occurs between a biological man and a biological woman. And when my friend, their kid, uh, decided that he didn't share that belief and he separated himself from the church, uh, they didn't really like that very much, but he still chose to do it anyways, right? He opted out of something and opted into a different thing. And what I think is, is going on in the text that the students in my seminar are reading is it the text is trying to talk about this idea of opting out as a way of exercising one's sort of uh, ability to decide things for oneself. The idea is that it is okay to opt out of certain situations and then therefore like opt into a different situation and that this could be seen as uh, a liberating form of separating oneself from a set of practices or beliefs or ideologies or whatever that are oppressive or that one experiences is oppressive. And that, that's the, the deal here. So what does this have to do with negativity, you might ask? Um, this is what I think it has to do with it. So if we can conceive of negativity not as bad, but as lacking, as not having something, we can see that a lot of times it is by lacking something, not having something, that a person actually becomes uh, aware of their lack and becomes motivated to do something about it. The, the basic argument I think I'm trying to make here is that what we have in our lives, that is an important thing. And I think that generally speaking, we tend to privilege the idea that having things is a really important thing. That's what we focus on, what we have, what what they have, what somebody else has. We focus a lot on having. We focus a lot on the positive, positive meaning having. And when we do that, when we privilege having, what we do is we take not having, the negative, and we see it as less important than having. And part of the, the argument in, in this book and part of the argument of negativity is that actually not having things is a really, really, really important thing. 
a lot of times the reason that people make the choices they make, a lot of times the reasons why people do the things they do, it's not because of what they have. Sometimes it is. But a lot of times very important choices are made because we lack something. It's because we don't have something. And not having that thing becomes the primary motivator of our, our thoughts, our beliefs, and our behaviors. It, it's not having that is really, really important. So that's my opening gambit here about negativity. I'm going to let that sink in for a little bit. Listen to this music. And when we come back, we'll talk about it some more. continue to riff on this idea of negativity and the idea that negativity, the idea that lacking is actually a really important thing, which determines and motivates a whole bunch of the things that we do. Uh, So to get that started, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, kind of try to give an example of this. So I live in the United States. One of the things that I think is very popular right now in the United States is probably popular in other countries too is the idea that people should be happy. There's this idea that, that if you're not happy, you're doing something wrong and that you should figure out why you're not happy, figure out what makes you happy, and then go do the thing that makes you happy. That, that's, I think, a very dominant kind of cultural belief in the society that I'm contained in. The idea that having happiness or having the things that make you happy, that that's good, and that lacking the things that make you happy, that that's bad and that, that you shouldn't do that. Uh, So if you can accept that for a moment, I'm going to uh, reference a little bit of popular culture here. There's a TV show, which is no longer on the air. It's finished. I think there was eight seasons of it called Mad Men. And this was a show that was on AMC. And it was about the advertising industry. And one of the main characters in the show was this advertising guy named Don Draper. And I I was trying to find what episode Don said this in, and I, I couldn't locate it before I sat down to record this. So sorry about that. But in one of the episodes of Mad Men, Don Draper says something like, do you know what happiness is? Question mark. And people, when he asked that question, they're like, no, what, what is happiness? And Don says, happiness is the thing that you get before you need more happiness. And I, I want to highlight that bit of an episode of Mad Men because I think it really gets at something which is super, super important about happiness. And that is that no matter how much happiness we have, no matter how many things that make us happy we acquire, it's the happiness that we don't have that we're very fixated on. It is the happiness that we lack or the things that will bring happiness that we don't have. Those are the things that occupy our thoughts. Those are the things that we spend our time and energy attempting to bring into our lives. We do not spend a whole bunch of time and energy enjoying the things that we have, enjoying the happiness that we have. We don't, 
We don't do that, which is not to say that we don't spend any energy there. We do. We spend a little bit of our energy going, oh, this is nice. I'm glad I have this thing. I, How nice that I have it. We get those small, fleeting, I would argue, moments where we do that, where we're, we're like content for just a bit, you know, like I, I, I got something that I wanted. I did something that I wanted to do. Good me. But then very quickly after that, there's this thing that happens where people go, okay, uh, now that I have this, now that I've done that, now what do I do? And in that moment, what I think happens is we become aware that even though we might have a bunch of things or a bunch of experiences that we think are good and that make us feel happy, content, et cetera, that there's, that we could have more. That's what, that's what we realize. When we realize that we could have more, we identify something that would make us happy that we don't have. And then what do we do? We try to get it. And that this is a huge, huge, huge amount of what constitutes our lives is this identification of something lacking, something negative as in we don't have it. And then in recognizing that there's something that we don't have, but that we want, we now know what direction we want to go in. We, we know what we want to try to get. So try to give you an example here. Imagine you have a job and uh, you do an annual performance review and then you sit down with your boss and your boss says, hey, after looking at your, your, your performance during this last year, we want to give you a raise. You might be like, oh, that's so great. I'm, so, I'm happy I got a raise. I, that's awesome. And so you get a little bit more money. Well, what happens when you get that little bit more money? Are you like, okay, good. I, I have extra, I'm more say, like usually no, that's not what happens to people. What happens is they spend that money on various things. And what do they want now? They want more money again, right? So the, the idea is then the next year, maybe they come around and they don't get a raise. And then when that happens, the person's like mad that they didn't get a raise again because they, they, they wanted more. Um, and this isn't always only about money. Sometimes it's about titles. Like if, if you, you know, start off and I don't know, maybe somebody starts off as a, uh, at a certain, like they're an account manager and then eventually they want to become, you know, a, a director and then they want to move from director to vice president and from vice president to senior vice president and from senior vice president to some kind of chief executive of some chief operations officer. I don't know. Right. Like this is something that people will go through too. And usually when I, I see people going through that, the title that they have, the money that they have, that's nice. They, they do enjoy that. But what really, really, really motivates them, what they really, really, really spend their time thinking about, what they really, really spend their time fantasizing about is the money and the title that they don't have, but they want to get. And because they spend their time fantasizing about that, thinking about that, fixating on that, that's the thing, the thing that they don't have, the thing that they lack, the negative that actually ends up motivating a gigantic amount of their behavior. So this is, I think, a really important thing to understand when we think about the concept of negativity, when we think about how important it is, how, well, let me say this differently. When we think about how important the things that we don't have are to us. That's actually a very, I think, enlightening thing. I don't think it's something that we're encouraged to think about all that often. Be that as it may, it's really important. So that's the argument that I want to make about negativity. And hopefully that makes some sense. 
So now that I've talked about that, um, I'll kind of close the chapter on negativity for a little bit here. We'll do another quick transition. And when we come back from this tr- quick transition, we're going to be shifting gears. We're going to be talking about another concept that I think is generally misunderstood very often. And that is the concept of the death drive. So stick around, come back after the music, and you'll get to hear all about that super exciting thing, the death drive. We are back from our transition, and now let's talk about the death drive. But here's what I'm going to try to do. Before I talk about the death drive, I'm going to try to build a bit of a bridge between negativity and the death drive. So in the previous couple of segments of this podcast, I have tried to describe what negativity is, negativity as something that we don't have. And I've also tried to say that it's the things that we don't have which actually kind of end up motivating us. Another thing that I claimed is that one of the things that many people in the society and the culture that I am in tend to want is this thing called happiness or contentment, you might say. And so I want to start from that. I want to unpack a little bit about what contentment might be, about what happiness might be. And, you know, I've actually, in preparation to do this podcast, I've had some really informal conversations with people around this. I've, I've asked them like, hey, I have a potentially oddball question for you here. Um, can you describe to me what it is that comes to mind when you think of being content? Can you tell me what it means to you uh, to be happy? And in a lot of those informal conversations, what people will do is they will say, what makes me happy, what makes me content is, um, interestingly, right, not having something, not having stress, They'll, they'll talk about that. Uh, I'm happy when I lack stress. I'm happy when there isn't a whole bunch of anxiety in my life. So right away, we already have a negative here, a lacking of something. So we can see the, the negative in, in essence there, right? Um, so that's what they say. Uh, I'm happiest when I am sitting on a beach. I don't have anything to do. I have no pressing demands. I can just kind of uh, be in my body and let the warmth of the sun you know, hit my skin and and listen to the sound of the surf and maybe drink some kind of tasty alcoholic beverage and just like that, that to me is happiness. Somebody actually described that very scene to me. Other times people describe different things. They say they they just want to like sit somewhere and like read a book or whatever. But there's this really common trend of uh, contentment or happiness being a lack of demand a lack of a to-do list, a lack of all this stuff which is stressing you out and making you feel anxious because you need to get to it because if you don't get to it, you're going to be in trouble. That's what a lot of people describe as happiness. That's what a lot of people describe as contentment. And this brings me to the death drive. So the death drive is this idea that was originally postulated by Freud 
and it was, I believe, originally postulated in a thing that was published in 1920, which was titled Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And in that text, what Freud argues is that there is a, a desire, a drive that human beings have. And it is the drive to have nothing that stresses us out in our life, to have nothing that is making us anxious, to have nothing that is making demands of us, that that's what we want. You see this in a couple of different ways. So if you ever hear people kind of valorize what it was like to be a child and they say like, oh, oh, if only I could go back to being a child. When I was a child, life was great because there was, I just didn't have any responsibilities. I didn't have anything that I needed to do. I could do whatever I wanted for the most part. I was, I was unaware of all of these things. Now that I'm adult, an adult, ugh, being an adult, it's awful because it's just constant like do this thing. And then as soon as you, you do that, you have to do some other things. So it's like, you got to cut the grass. Oh, okay, great. Then you got to get the grass in these bags and bring the bags to the curb. Uh, and then also what else do you have to do? Oh, you got to go back in. And it turns out that you look at your text messages and somebody's asking you for this thing and you're like, Oh, I got to respond to this. And then when you're done doing that, it turns out that, Oh, you got time to give the, the kids a bat. It's just like constant thing, thing, thing. And you're like, Oh, I'm just so worn out. That's what adult life is. But when I was a child, I was just like playing all the time and everything was great. You'll hear, I mean, not everybody says that, of course, but some people say that. I'm being maybe a little bit over the top with it, but I think you catch my drift. Um, you'll hear people describe that. So Freud said that there's a time where we actually don't have anything stressing us out. There is a time when, there, when the anxiety that we feel is zero, absolutely zero, no anxiety at all. Not like 0. 0.001, but zero right? Zero anxiety, zero stress, zero demands. What is that time? You might ask. I'm so glad you asked. That time is the time before we were born. Once the human body is born, um, this, is, uh, this is where demands start, right? You, you, there's things that you got to do right away from the time that you're born. There's things that stress you out from the time that you're born. Like I, I have a three-month-old in front of me. I mentioned that earlier. Um, if my three-month-old is hungry, he gets stressed out. He gets anxious and he lets me know that he's stressed out and anxious because he uh, cries. He's like, feed me, give me nourishment. I'm stressed. I don't like this feeling of being hungry. If, he, if his, his diaper is uh, um, wet or you know whatever, he, he gets uncomfortable and he, he lets me know that he's not comfortable. If he needs to burp, that stresses him out and he's like, I can't do anything about this. So the idea here is that from, from like as soon as we're born, we have uh, stress and anxiety in some form, and that stress and anxiety as we get older can just take on different forms and be attached to different things, different experiences. That's what happens, right? So that's what Freud said. To be alive, to be living, is to experience things that create stress and anxiety because to keep yourself alive, you have to struggle. You have to. If you don't struggle, you won't live. Life is a struggle. It's a struggle to get the things that you need. It's a struggle to get the things that you want. It's a struggle to um, create the next generation that you then take care of so that they can kind of make the species go forward. Uh, Freud said all of that is a struggle. And he, he said for some people, I mean, maybe this isn't Freud, this is more Lacan, I guess. Lacan suggested after Freud that that struggle can be enjoyable and it can also be unenjoyable. If, it, if the struggle is not enjoyable, this is when people become suicidal. This is when they think about ending their lives in a really serious way, when they don't enjoy the struggle that is life. Um, but let's bounce back to Freud here for a second. 
Freud said that if life is struggle and there is a, a desire to go back to a time before we were born when there was no struggle, what that means is that everybody is to some degree suicidal. And he called that, that desire to just go back to a time when there is no stress, when there is no anxiety, the death drive. And, and that drive was the drive to just get this thing called life over with so that you can stop being because when you are no longer alive, there will be nothing bothering you. There'll be nothing creating anxiety. There'll be nothing creating stress. And he thinks that people have that drive and that that drive gets repressed, i.e. when it gets repressed, we're not aware of it. It's, it's operating, but it's operating unconsciously, not part of our consciousness, but part of our unconsciousness. And that it comes out in all these unexpected ways, like um, consuming copious amounts of alcohol, smoking tobacco, uh, eating junk food, doing other self-destructive things that people do. Freud would say that's the death drive asserting itself in, in our lives. So that's the idea of the death drive here kind of explained. Let me do one more quick summary here. Um, before we're born, we have no stress, we have no anxiety, it's zero. But as soon as we're born, as soon as there is a, a us, a, a we, an I, that, that thing that is us has to struggle, which means that it has to endure stress and anxiety and other unpleasant things. Uh, if that struggle, if the struggle of life is enjoyable to you, uh, then you will can find a reason to continue struggling. If that struggle is not enjoyable to you, then, you know, why not just get this life thing over with and get on with the dying? That's that's the idea there. So that's my, my summary of the death drive. We're going to take one more quick break here, and then we're going to come back. We're going to do our last segment of this podcast. And we are back once again. So here's going to be my attempt to bring all of this in for a landing. I'm going to try to tie all this stuff together. I don't know if I'll be able to do it, but I'm going to try. Negativity. Let's bounce back to negativity for a second. When we don't have something, not having it kind of can be something which is good insofar as uh, we recognize that we lack something and then we get motivated to try to get closer to the thing that we lack. I'm going to give you a different example that I haven't given yet. I believe that almost everybody in their head has a version of themselves that they want to turn into, but they're not there yet. They're not that version. They're not the best version of themselves yet, but they have an idea of this thing called the best version of me. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get to that best version of themselves. Perhaps the best version of you is a more educated version of you. And so in an attempt to get closer to that version of yourself, you will go back to school and you'll get a master's degree or a PhD or some other form of doctorate to get closer to that better version of yourself. Perhaps the best version of yourself um, is more healthy, has a lower resting heart rate than the version of yourself that you are now. And uh, so what you might do is, you know, get an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or some other fitness monitor, start doing some cardio, and, you know, week by week, see your resting heart rate, you know, go down. And that means you're getting closer to this ideal version of yourself. Maybe the ideal version of yourself is a self that gives more to charity. And so you tell yourself, I want to give more to charity 
in the year 2021 than I did in the year 2020. So uh, the better version of me will do that. So on and so forth. I think you can see where I'm going with this, right? This idea of the better version of yourself, that is something that you don't have. It's a negative thing. Negative meaning you don't have it, you lack it. But that lacking it is actually producing the effect of getting you to do different things and stuff in your life. Um, Now, what I will say is if people are lacking something, they can identify what they're lacking and then they can kind of sort of make incremental progress towards whatever it is that they're lacking. That leads to a enjoyment, a jouissance of being alive. But if people can't do that, let's, let's look at that. Let's imagine that somebody wants to become a better version of themselves and they think, oh, a better version of myself would be a more educated version of me. And let's say they try to go to school, but for some reason, somebody tells them, no, you're not allowed to do that. You don't have the, they don't have the money to pay for school, perhaps. That could be one thing that would make that off limits. Or um, maybe they live in a society that, that is uh, racist or bigoted and doesn't allow people who of th- this person to go to school because of their biological characteristics. It's another thing that could happen. It has happened definitely throughout human history. Maybe um, somebody lives in a place where to go to school, they have to renounce something that they're unwilling to renounce. They might have to renounce, I don't know, some, some aspect of their culture or their tradition or something like that. And they're, they're not willing to do it. So on and so forth, right? Imagine that. So imagine you're in the situation where you go, oh, I want to become a better version of me. To do that, I need to go to school. You try to go to school, but you're told no, not happening. You are not allowed to do that. Now, some people might try to overcome that obstacle. Maybe they do it, but maybe they don't. Let's say they don't for this example. What's the effect of that? Well, the effect of that is a lot of frustration. Tons and tons of frustration. I think that when people experience too much frustration, when they experience too much stress, when they experience too much anxiety, when they experience too much lacking, and there's like literally nothing they can do about it except for just endure it, and that's it, that that can have the effect of making the death drive that I just described get more fired up, get more powerful. Now, if there's a thing that you can do, if there's something that is available to you that you can sort of tap into, that can help keep the death drive kind of set to a low simmer. But when there's nothing available to you, nothing that you can do, what happens is the flame underneath the death drive gets turned up and it starts to boil more, right? It becomes more operant. It becomes more of a going concern in our lives. And that is an important thing. And that's where I'm going to kind of wrap up the podcast today. So my the seminar people, if you're listening to this, um, you're going to be going into the next book that we're reading, which is a book called Necropolitics. And uh, what I've talked about in this podcast lecture thing today has, I hope, kind of, sort of, maybe set up that text a little bit. It's kind of primed it a little bit. And if you're not a member of the seminar, you're just somebody who listens to this podcast on a regular basis. Thanks for listening. And if you want to follow along with the seminar, you can read The Ethics of Opting Out, which the seminar just finished, and you can start reading the book Necropolitics. Links to those books will be in the show notes for this show. Um, And uh, that's all that I got to say. So thank you for taking the time to listen. 
damn the demand, save the desire, and please, please, please make some glorious mistakes. Till next time, take care.